Well, John Newton uh, is the author of that powerful song, Amazing Grace, that we just sang. It's perhaps the most popular church song of the last 200 years and maybe one of the most popular even in culture more broadly, right? We're all familiar with Amazing Grace. Well, John Newton, who wrote that song, was a slave trader in the 1700s. He lived his life preying on others, devaluing and demeaning, buying and selling people. It's an atrocity and it is every bit as horrific as we can imagine. On one journey, uh, after searching the African coast for men and women to capture and sell, his boat was overcome by a storm that seemed insurmountable. He gripped onto the steering wheel and he cried out to God, Lord, have mercy on us. And after steering for 11 more hours, he found safety as the storm calmed. From that day on, he set aside that day, March 21st, as a day for humility, prayer, and praise. See, God drew John Newton to himself. He convicted him of his sin, and he began to make him new through a relationship with Jesus. And years later, he wrote the words to the song we just sang. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And years later in his life, as his memory began to fade, John Newton said he could remember these two things clearly that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. This morning, we're going to dive into the longest description of heaven, that place that gripped John Newton as he wrote that final verse. It's the longest description of heaven in the whole Bible as we anticipate together the eternity that we'll spend with God, who reached down while we were wretches, pulled us out of darkness, and will give us an eternity of existence in his presence. Would you follow along with me as we continue in Revelation? We're going to be reading Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 through chapter 22 verse 5. Uh, I'll be reading from the CSB. Uh, Whatever digital translation you have is just fine. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab the Worship Center Bible uh, under the chairs in front of you. There are a bunch scattered throughout I'm reading a long text to start the message this morning. I get that. You you may find yourself with your mind wandering, thinking about what happened this morning or what you're having for lunch or whatever football team you're cheering for later. When you catch your mind wandering, fight to bring it back to focus. Fight to pay attention to God's word this morning. Would you follow along with me then as I read Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through chapter 22, verse 5. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and he himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. 
Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent, as glass. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter, in, enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb on the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. As we work back through this text this morning, I want to look at five characteristics we see here of the new heaven and the new earth. First, in verses one and two, we will be in a city. I think pop culture paints a picture of heaven that's uh, in all sorts of different ways, right? You may remember Pastor Kale talking about this in 
sermons past, we see clouds and harps and baby angels shooting people so that they fall in love with each other, right? It's this grand old time. Well, I think we often approach the Bible with that view of heaven in our minds, and and then we're a little unclear on what happens in the end and why we're so excited about it. Well, this text seems to tell us pretty clearly that God will reform the earth, and then descending out of heaven, there's this beautiful and enormous city called New Jerusalem. So does that mean that those of us who prefer the country life and getting out in nature will uh, be disappointed in heaven? Of course not, right? Of course not. There'll be plenty of green space and God himself will be there. We're going to see some more characteristics of the city as we work back through, but for now, it's enough to say we will be in a city. Second, God will dwell with his people again. John uh, starts this, he sees this new heaven and new earth where the first had passed away and he notes that the sea is gone. God is starting fresh. He's reforming and making creation new and the sea is no more. The sea, as you may remember, is a symbol of chaos in the ancient Near East. See, in various creation myths and stories, the gods had to wrestle or fight with the sea or maybe with a monster that emerged from the sea. And in the midst of all that chaos, uh, creation happened sort of as a byproduct of those battles. And they had to fight to take control of the earth and rule over it. Well, in scripture, all the way back in Genesis 1, there is no such struggle. As God begins his self-revelation that is the Bible, he asserts his early control. Genesis 1 verses 1 to 2 say this. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God just speaks creation into existence. And then verse 2 says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. It's still There's no struggle, there's no conflict, there's no question of who is in control in the beginning. And now, here in the end, God once again asserts his control. Chapter 21 verse 1 says that the first heaven and first earth had passed away and that the sea was no more. As God prepares a place to dwell with his people, he makes one thing abundantly clear up front. There will be no chaos. There will be no chaos. God's holy city, this new Jerusalem, descends out of heaven from God like a bride adorned for her husband. And this voice exclaims, look, God is dwelling with humanity. There is people and he will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death and crying and grief and pain will be no more because all that junk has passed away. There won't be chaos. You may remember... Last week in chapter 20, John addressed the eternal state of those who had been beheaded because of their faithfulness and testimony before the Lord. See, persecution uh, in the first century and around the world today is a real struggle for believers. The threat of being beheaded wasn't something that was out there halfway across the world like it is for us. It was right here on your front steps. Losing your life For your faith is a threat that our brothers and sisters around the world face on a daily basis. It's persecution around the globe is alive and well. Although here in the United States, we experience very little threat to our well-being for following Jesus. That said, it's not hard to look forward and see that our culture is devolving into chaos. 
And while we don't typically experience threats on our lives, there are very real struggles for believers with very real consequences. For example, a believing waitress shows up for work one day during Pride Month, and she's given a rainbow bracelet to wear with her uniform. Should she do it? What happens if she doesn't? A Jesus follower starts a new job in customer service, and he's given a uniform and a nameplate, and on that nameplate is a spot to write his preferred pronouns. Should he participate in that? Should he not? What happens if he does or doesn't? A Christian high school volleyball coach is told that they must welcome biologically male students onto the girls' team and treat them as though they are female. It's chaos. Chaos, right? And some of these issues haven't hit our community yet, but many of them have. And as we continue to progress as culture, they will. These issues will hit us. The pressures of culture and society and temptation can feel like we're being pulled in a million directions all at once, right? And we just, we don't know how to handle it and we're barely hanging on by a thread. Like our lives are this big game of Jenga and if one more person or one more issue comes through and pokes out the wrong brick, the whole thing is going to fall apart. Well, in heaven, in God's holy city of Jerusalem, there will be no more chaos, There will be no more chaos. God will dwell in our midst. We will be his people and he will be our God. We won't wonder anymore if God has departed from us. He won't ever feel distant again. We'll never commit that sin again and feel like God couldn't love us anymore. This city we will dwell in will be flooded with God's presence. And because of God's presence, there will be no more tears or death or grief, or crying, or pain. Everything on earth is damaged by sin. Everything. But in heaven, when God dwells with his people, the stain of sin will be fully gone. Things won't be wrong, ever. They'll only be right. God will be with his people, and just like a good parent hugs their kid and comforts them when they're hurt, God will comfort his children forever. Church, don't miss this. Don't miss the excitement and anticipation here. We will dwell face to face with God, the creator of the universe, as his children forever. He will wipe away every tear. He will right every wrong. He will make all things new. There will be no more chaos, no more destruction. Everything will be utterly pure, completely untouched by sin forever. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. The third characteristic of this city, only those who conquer will enter the city. Verses 5 to 8 talk about this. It says, the one on the throne says this, I am making everything new, and then says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of uh, the Greek alphabet, which is what most of the New Testament was written in. And uh, when authors and speakers used this construct, it was meant to emphasize the totality of everything that lies between. In this case, when God refers to himself as Alpha and Omega, he's powerfully declaring that he is God at the beginning, he is God at the end, and he is God over everything in between. 
There is no moment in history, no event that took place, no prophecy that was fulfilled that is outside of his purview. Every moment from eternity past to eternity future is under his sovereign control. Which is why he's able to say what he is in these verses. Namely, that he's making all things new. Who else could make all things new aside from an all-powerful God who is in control of every moment forever? Who else could do such a thing? And he's also able, in verses 7 and 8, to say that some will be children of God and some will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. You may remember several months back, we covered the seven churches in the earlier chapters. And at the, each, at the end of each address to each church, it said, to the one who conquers, they get the benefit, right? You get uh, the right to the tree of life. You'll never be harmed by the second death and so on and so forth. Well, here we see the culmination of all of those declarations in the early chapters of Revelation. Who is the one who conquers? Do you remember? He is the one who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and follows after him with his life. And what does he or she get? Well, it says right here, they drink from the spring of the water of life, of water that grants life eternal. And they get sonship. Sonship, full status as co-heirs with Christ. But, verse 8, the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share is in the second death. Fire and sulfur and separation from God for all eternity. God gives us every opportunity in this life to repent of our sins and turn to him. This morning is an opportunity for you to repent of your sins, confess Jesus as Lord, and experience new life. In fact, he sent his only son to die on the cross that sinners like you and me might enjoy existence in New Jerusalem and his presence forever. He gives every opportunity, but make no mistake, only followers of Jesus Christ, those who confess the lordship of Jesus in this life will enter into the city of New Jerusalem and taste the goodness of God and his presence forever. Don't misunderstand this point. It's really easy to be influenced by ideas uh, and start to empathize with the thought that, well, anyone should be able to get in. Right? And if God is really loving, he'll just make some exceptions at the end and sweep things under the rug. Except he won't. He won't do that. If you're not following Jesus, if you have not placed your trust in him in this life, then in the next, you will experience eternal torment and separation from God. I think as believers, that reality can make us squirm a little bit. Right? The idea that God punishes those apart from him for all eternity, it's, it's kind of tough. And it makes us feel uncomfortable, especially when someone confronts us with it. Right? Like, how, how can you believe in a God who does this? How can you believe in a God who punishes those who don't follow him for all of eternity? That makes us uncomfortable, but it doesn't have to. See, we don't have to defend God or his character or the decisions that he makes. He's fully capable of defending himself. We can and we should think critically about 
tough theological questions and we should wrestle through those and we should help others do the same. And the Bible does give satisfying answers to difficult questions like this one. So of course, use your brains and think deeply, especially about the challenging things of God. We don't have to turn our brains off as we come to the Bible. All of that said, we can also understand that God's ways are higher than ours, as high as the heavens are above the earth. We're not going to understand everything about him. And at the end of the day, God is God and we are not. And so, we have to understand what's most important is not having a perfect answer to why God allows suffering and punishment in the end. There are answers to that question. But what's most important is not understanding that. What's most important is having a solid grasp on the reality that it is only by trusting in Jesus Christ that we are able to be forgiven our sins and behold our God face to face for all of eternity. John Newton was drawn out of deep sin and made new by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your sin issue is. His was terrible. But God is in the business of making all things, even you, all things new. So confess Jesus and count yourselves among the conquerors in Christ. And one day you will experience the very presence of God in heaven. Fourth, this city is glorious and it's marked by six things in verses 9 to 27. One of the seven angels in these verses who held a bowl that had a plague in it takes John and he carries him away in the spirit up on this high mountain and he looks up at the holy city coming down from heaven and it's coming from God and this description that we read is amazing and it's marked by at least these six things. First, it is perfectly designed. It's perfectly designed. John says it is arrayed with God's glory in verse 11. It has all these gates and these foundations and it's filled with all these jewels and it measures a perfect cube and the main street is pure gold that's transparent as glass. See, the luxuries that we experience on earth, all of these things that we value so much, exotic gems and precious metals, every luxury on earth, it'll be commonplace in the New Jerusalem, commonplace in this city. The best parts of this life, the best things that we experience, the ways that we can be the most pampered, the things that we can drop the most money on to try and satisfy ourselves. Common, common in the city of God. If this stuff is commonplace, how great is life gonna be in God's city? The absolute best experiences, your favorite things to do, your favorite foods, your favorite activities, your favorite adventures, they're boring compared to what heaven is like. It's perfectly designed. Not only is it perfectly designed, but it needs no temple because God is fully present. You may remember in the Old Testament, the temple is where God dwelled in the midst of his people. Well, this new Jerusalem needs no temple because God will walk with his people. The Father won't feel distant. Jesus will walk the streets with us. The Spirit will be among us, and these things will be tangible. There's a reality to this now. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are present and active and working in our lives even now. The Holy Spirit is present in this room, right? Convicting and encouraging and challenging and comforting. He really is here. But in heaven, 
it's different. It's not just spiritual presence, it's physical. It's the difference between your friend being present on a screen, right, over Zoom or a FaceTime call and your friend really being in the room with you. And that's, that's an imperfect analogy because it's not as though God is less present now than he will be later. He really is present among us. I think it's that we'll experience him more fully. Sin will be gone and in our new bodies we'll be able to handle being in his glorious presence and beholding his face and it will bring us overwhelming joy. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says it like this. It says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Everything we see is a reflection in a mirror. Even the glory of God we see as a reflection as in a mirror. But then face to face. Then, face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. God will dwell with his people and he will be their God, fully present for all of eternity. Third, it needs no light. God illuminates it. Just like the sea represents chaos, darkness often represents sinister things, right? Wickedness takes place at night under the cover of darkness. This is a reality that we're very familiar with and it's portrayed in the media all the time, right? Thieves break in to steal at night. Criminals are fought by superheroes in dark alleys at night. Mythic monsters transform at night in the moonlight to wreak their havoc. It's a reality that we may experience on a more personal level, right? The dark scares us. There's fear of what's unknown, what's lurking in the shadows, and that can be overwhelming. Well, in heaven, there will be no more darkness. God himself will illuminate the city. There will be nothing lurking. There will be no evil present. There will be no threat of danger, which leads us to the next marker. Its gates will never close. It is open and it is safe. Cities have gates basically for two reasons, right? Often to let people in, friendly people in, but usually more importantly, to keep people and other kinds of danger out. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no danger to keep out. The gates of the city will remain open every day, all day, for all of eternity, and it will never be night or dark or scary again. There's so much comfort to be had as we anticipate this, right? The reality of our lives is that we experience real deep fear, real deep fear about very real things. We have experienced things in our past that haunt us, right? And we have flashbacks and we wake up sweating in the night full of terror. We have nightmares that seem to come out of nowhere for no reason and they mess with our heads, Friends, with Jesus in eternity, that will never happen. It will never happen. There will be no darkness and the gates will always be open because there will be nothing to be afraid of and you will never experience fear again. Next, the best things of earth will be carried in. Entering into the new Jerusalem will be crowds from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. 
Now, you may know this, but people all over the world worship God differently, right? There's, there's a lot of different ways to worship the Lord. Even in the United States and probably within our city, we worship God differently. The way we worship reflects our culture and our people, and that's a beautiful and amazing thing. We're fortunate to catch a glimpse of this from time to time here at Crossview as we sing songs and hear prayers prayed in Spanish. But that's a tiny foretaste of the glorious diversity of language and worship tradition that will enter into heaven. Not only will great cultural diversity be brought in, but verses 24 and 26 say that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into heaven. The kings of earth will bring their greatest achievements to heaven as gifts to the Lord and will lay them at the feet of the one true king. Finally, only followers of Jesus will enter. Verse 27 reiterates a point that we already made. Nothing unclean will ever enter heaven, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Church, hear this. Hear these words. This, this whole book of Revelation has been building to this moment, this idea that we need to repent of our sins, confess Jesus as Lord, that wickedness will be dealt with. It all culminates in the reality that we must follow Jesus in this life if we want to experience glory in the next. This is deadly serious. It's deadly serious because whether you outright reject Jesus or you rely on yourself or your good works or you just live life on autopilot and hope that in the end your good outweighs your bad, if any of those describe you and you've not placed your trust in Jesus, you will not enter into the city of New Jerusalem. You will not experience rest. You will not behold the face of Jesus and be free from suffering. So confess Jesus. It's only by his righteousness that we can be saved. We can't do anything. It's by the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we can be saved and enter into New Jerusalem. The fifth and final characteristic we see of this city is that Eden will be restored within the walls in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. Do you remember Eden when God creates in Genesis chapter 1? He makes this garden where Adam and Eve dwell with him and he's in their midst walking with them and everything is untainted by sin and God and man and woman are friends and interact on a regular basis. Adam, and Adam names the animals and Eve is made and everything's perfect. And then Adam, in his sinfulness, messes it all up. Well, here in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, it's back. It's back and it's housed within this city. There's a river. It says the river of the water of life and it's flowing and it's clear as crystal and it comes from the throne room of the Lamb and on either side is a tree of life. Do you remember the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? It's that tree that if you eat of its fruit, it causes you to live forever. Well, there's two of them in this garden, and they bear 12 kinds of fruit. Fruit that's more juicy and delicious and sweet and pure than you can possibly imagine, and it's fresh every month. The leaves on this tree heal the nations, those nations who rejected God throughout Scripture. The trees heal them, and no longer will there be any curse, and you will be free to eat of the fruit. See, in Genesis, God drove Adam and Eve out after they ate from a different tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because sin had entered the world, and living forever in a world broken by sin is a terrible thing. So, 
In his great mercy, God cast mankind out and saved them from living forever on a sinful planet. But now, in the new Jerusalem, where there's no more suffering and pain and sorrow and sin, we can eat and taste from the tree of life and drink deeply from the water of life and enjoy living forever. It says God's throne will be in the middle and his people will praise and worship him all day. And by the time we've been there, for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing his praise than when we'd first begun. What an amazing God we serve. So what do we do with all of this? Well, we have three points of application as we conclude. First, confess Jesus as Lord. Confess Jesus as Lord so that you too can experience forgiveness and glory in eternity. If you're apart from the Lord and don't know Jesus and you aren't sure what happens after you die, that's a really rough place to be. There's this sense of existential dread, right? Like what's going to happen? There's this heavy uncertainty. And let's be honest, if this life really is all there is, even if you live it up and have a grand time and do everything that you want, it's pretty disappointing, right? Because the best things in this life leave us wanting more. They leave us feeling empty when they're over. We're longing for the next best thing. I think that's on purpose. This life is intended to leave us longing for more, namely for Jesus Christ and the fulfillment that he and he alone can provide both in this life and in eternity. So if that's you, if that's you, if you're here and you're searching for more and you're feeling that emptiness and wondering how can I fill this because I know everything I'm doing leaves me empty, you're wrestling with the dread of what happens when I die. I don't know, and, and I'm scared of that. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Confess him as Lord of your life and experience freedom from sin and shame and suffering and pain and eagerly look forward to the day when he will take us home. Second, participate in church now. Participate in church now. See, when you accept Jesus Christ, you are brought into the church, the, the church globally, not necessarily specifically Crossview. You're brought into the church. So to think that you can accept Jesus and not be in a church, in a local church, is a completely foreign idea to the authors of the New Testament. To be a believer in the New Testament was to be counted among the members of the church broadly and then specifically of a local body like Crossview. We need to be gathered together as often as we can so that we can hear the gospel declared. We hear, that, we hear it declared when we sing worship songs together and as we preach from the stage. It's declared. And, and we need to gather together so that we can see the gospel displayed as we pray for and encourage and love one another in conversations before and after services. If I'm really honest and just pastorally, Honestly, ideally, you'll be at church gathered as the bride of Christ nearly every single week. Every single week you should be here. And if I really push it, even when it's more convenient to watch online, you should reject that and come gather with God's people in person. I know you're busy. I know you're tired after a long week of work. I know there are people that you don't get along with and people that you feel awkward around, your kids are tired and you know, you're kind of crabby and you had an 
argument with your spouse on Saturday night or maybe on Sunday morning when you're getting ready. You know the best place for you to be in every single one of those instances? It's here, gathered with God's people, hearing the gospel declared, letting the spirit move in your heart and seeing the gospel displayed by your brothers and sisters in the foyer afterwards. So plug in, show up on Sundays and show up during the week at your life groups, even when you don't feel like it. Let God meet you in those places through other believers. Be the church. Finally, what do we do? We eagerly look forward to the day when God will make all things new. We look forward to all sorts of things, right? All sorts of good things. A a family vacation that's coming up or the arrival of a new baby or being reunited with a friend or family member that we haven't seen in a while. Even silly things like a package arriving in the mail with something we're excited about. And what happens when those events come to take place? It's great, right? It's exciting. Uh, This this culmination of this anticipation. Well, entering New Jerusalem is so incomprehensibly better than anything we can anticipate in this life. And it should change how we think and how we plan and how we act. What happens when your best friend is coming to visit? You clean the house, right? You prepare a room for them to sleep in. You plan for meals. You rearrange your life temporarily around this significant event, the arrival of your friend. Well, nothing is more significant than entering into the full presence of God when you die. Whatever preparations you make, whatever earthly desires you forego, and whatever holiness you pursue will have all been worth it when you pass from this life into the next and you enter into the great holy city of New Jerusalem and you walk with the Father and you talk with him and with the Son and with the Spirit in a place that is totally untouched by sin and all its chaos. So, church, let's live in anticipation of that great day. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth and the hope revealed in it. We thank you for this description of heaven and the new Jerusalem and all the hope that's found in the reality that we will one day be reunited with you. We recognize that Everything that we see now has been touched and defiled by sin. Lord, even our own hearts and our desires and the things that we pursue are messed with because of sin. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would convict us and encourage us and give us a beautiful view and a hope and a desire to follow after you more closely as we eagerly anticipate your arrival and our entering into the city of New Jerusalem. We love you and we thank you that we're able to to gather together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.